Hi everybody and welcome to the University of Applied Research and Development and our video cast today and we are privileged to have Michael Prasad with us who's an incredibly experienced author, emergency manager and has a huge history in emergency management. Michael, great to have you with us. Thank you, Craig. Nice to be here. Thanks for giving us your time. I'd love for you to introduce yourself and how you came to be involved in emergency management. Sure. So my background is actually from the uh, finance and uh, banking industry. I started out out of college uh, working for some big banks in New York City and financial firms. Um, one of the things that I did then was uh, the Y2K project. So in, in, in Y2K, everybody was building up towards this massive, um, you know, what was going to happen, the world ending sort of a thing. And, and that included the financial services industry. So a lot of consequence management, a lot of what ifs. Um, and we were watching uh, what was happening in uh, New Zealand and uh, Australia because it was going to happen there first and, and, you know, working our way across the globe. Uh, so that got the bite. And then, unfortunately, you know, due to 9-11, um, things changed dramatically for me. And part of that was uh, an understanding that there is, you know, a whole field out there of emergency management. And um, I got the, the bite and I started working for the Red Cross uh, as an employee. Um, back then, uh, after finishing a stint in the brokerage uh, type business and things like that, it, it was actually less stressful to work on disasters than it was to work in the financial services industry. It, uh, so it's an interesting uh, sort of twist. But one of the things that I did was um, spend a lot of time working on disaster uh, planning. And so the the idea of what do you do when there's something big and whether that impacts a you know, single family, a small community, a state, or even our nation, um, it, it's been all sort of interconnected. And, and the structure that's in place um, from the federal government, the states, um, and the nonprofits, the non-government organizations, we all kind of work together. The, the whole community aspect is certainly there. So I got that bite. Um, I did some work then for the state uh, of New Jersey. In, I'm here in the United States um, in, in the great state of New Jersey. And then um, now I'm a consultant on my own. I'm working uh, for a number of different firms, including my own, to do uh, teaching and training and, and uh, building out of uh, organizational consequence management or crisis action plans. Uh, all that works together. So if you're a, a small plumbing firm or if you're a college or a university or um, a major uh, multinational corporation, everybody needs a plan for what to do when there's uh, an emergency. And part of that planning is knowing what to do before, during and after um, those types of incidents, whether they're human made or, or natural or technological or who knows what. Um, just be ready for things. and. And one of the other key things about it is that um, all of these kinds of things can happen at the same time, right? You can have a, a worldwide pan pandemic at the same time you have civil unrest, at the same time you have a coin mm. shortage, at the same time you have election fraud issues. So, you know, worrying about all of that and dealing with all of that and the physical aspects, the, the unmet needs, um, all of that can happen at the same time. And oh, by the way, it's still hurricane season here in the United States, hurricane typhoon season. Wow. Michael, one of the um, ways that I found you and, and heard about what you do is through the article that you wrote on domestic preparedness. And I just want to put that up on the screen there so that people know about the site and about the incredible writing that's there by experts such as yourself. And you mentioned there and you described really clearly about VOADs and COADs. 
and their role and their importance. So I just want to highlight that article and I'll make sure I drop the links actually into the chat so people that are watching the recording can actually find the link and go and find your articles that you've written. But how about you talk to us about VOADs and COADs, their role and sure. their importance? So those are acronyms, um, and and we sort of say them in in this in a um, enunciated way. It's VOADs and COADs, and and a VOAD is the Voluntary Organization Active in Disaster. So when you think of that, um, the American Red Cross would certainly come to mind, or any of the Red Crosses from any of the national societies. The Salvation Army, which is um, actually headquartered in in the United Kingdom, um, but their operations are worldwide as well too. Team Rubicon, um, there's a number of them out there. Many of the faith-based organizations um, across the world, um, uh, Islamic Relief, uh, the um, Nahama, which is a Jewish uh, foundational group. Um, there are a number of them where they're, uh, they have an active in disaster construct, meaning that the organization helps out in disasters. But they're voluntary, meaning that the predominance of their support uh, is through volunteers. And donations, mm. nonprofits. So, a non-government organization is includes, for example, um, profit-making companies, corporations. So, your local um, department store, your local uh, hardware store, uh, the big box stores. Those are all non-government organizations. But so is the charities, the um, the nonprofits, the foundations, that sort of thing. So, a VOAD is predominantly or almost all voluntary organizations. A COAD is a community organization's active in disaster or county, which is one of our governmental levels organizations. What that does is the COAD structure allows for a more open environment where it includes government and also includes potentially for-profit corporations. So for example, in New Jersey, we have a statewide VOAD which is the volunteer organizations active in disaster. The, the VOAD has affiliate memberships for private companies and for government. So a non-voting membership, if you think of it that way. But at but within the state of New Jersey are counties. So in, in some jurisdictions, it's county, parish, territory. I don't know, you know, it, it varies from, from nation to nation, but think of it as a, a, a more smaller localized group that has localized resources rather than a state or a national structure. There also is a national VOAD as well too. And just quickly, the the um, the aspects of these are are um, loosely affiliated, meaning that there's not a binding structure of uh, organizational orders or things like that from the national to the state. It's more guidance structures, but the the resources and the um, subject matter expertise tends to flow downward and also upward. Um, and I'll I'll talk about that in a second, related to my experience with the with the state level VOAD here in New Jersey. So these organizations that are in community, do they just pull themselves together when there is a response that's needed or are they always in a state of readiness? That is a perfect and a great question because the answer is they should be always ready and should be prepared or in resilient enough to structure themselves to be ready before, during and after any disasters. Unfortunately, what happens is they tend to stand up when something happens and then stand down or demobilize once the disaster is considered over. And through the recovery phase, they tend to finish or fizzle out, um, if, if anything, probably because of lack of interest and lack of funding. Um, mm -hmm. So the perfect example of that is um, 
we had hurricanes and storms here in New Jersey um, in the early 2000s. And the county level structures where they got hit with flooding or, or other damages, they would stand up a structure, they would get donations in, and then um, it would it would fall apart basically because there's no sense of um, organization that can can sustain itself with that. So one of the key things is that uh, we realized at the state level we had to have a constant group going to sort of revamp or restart these groups up again. And we got lucky after Superstorm Sandy in 2012 in that the funding was so great, the the media attention and so forth. A number of us, about four or five of us, uh, realized that we needed to sustain this. So not only do mm. you sort of fund the structure to get the donations and get the material to the families that need it, you have to build the structure to sustain the organizations that are delivering that structure, the, that 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 um, donations and that um, support to the families. Right. So it's not one and done, as they as they like to say. It, it is a is a structure. So part of that was that in New Jersey, we managed to get funding from some organizations and, and you know, selfishly, I'll say uh, I was involved in that process from both sides. I was interested in, um, in keeping the structure going and helping the families in New Jersey. And at the time I worked for the Red Cross and, and people were giving a lot of money to the Red Cross right. and didn't know exactly where to give it all away to. Um, that's one of the challenges sometimes when you have too much money. Um, something I think a lot of nonprofits would like to have, but not realize it's it's a it's a double-edged sword. Right. Um, so what the Red Cross did was it funded the VOAD at the state level. So rather than giving money, and they did give money, by the way, directly to families, they gave money to the organizations, not only to give out directly, but also to sustain them and to build their capacity for the long term. And that's that's the key to this is that resilience. So the article is geared toward the idea of starting or restarting those sub-level or even at some states, the state-level um, construct of the VOAD or the co-eds. And in New Jersey, we, we, have, um, we have 21 counties, so 21 subunits within the state. There were about 18 or 19 um, co-eds within that. Of those, I would say only four or five are active year after year in their construct. Now, we just had um, Hurricane Ida come in through. Um, it started out going through the southwest uh, or the central area, Louisiana, Texas, and it worked its way landwise across over to um, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York, et cetera. It was a declared disaster. So in the terms of damage, it was significant for New Jersey, about a tenth of the, the significance of Sandy. So not as impactful, but still, if you're the family that got flooded out of your home, mm, it's, it doesn't matter whether it was Sandy or this or that, you know, yeah. uh, flood is a flood type of a thing. And the challenge for us right now is that um, there isn't that media attention and there isn't that funding. So therefore mm. those co-ads and those um, VOADs need to be nurtured. And, and that's where the, the, the four E's come into play. So, I'd love for you to talk about that because you've got the four C's that make right. them work well, and then you've got the four E's where um, I guess the governmental organizations can then liaise with them through the four E's exactly. to make sure they are sustained. How about you tell us about those? Sure. So, one of the things is on the four C's, those are the standard um, national level VOAD uh, concepts. And, and they, by the way, these things work within government, government to government, within go government to the private sector. 
it, it's if you think about it, it private public partnerships or public private partnerships, the PPPs out there. That's something that is when you think of a whole community approach is really something that fed, the federal government, in the United States, FEMA and, and other agencies are really looking for. They know at the federal level they can't do it all themselves. I mean, just look at anything that's out there. Look at the way that airplanes uh, for the military are built. The, the military itself doesn't build them. They hire contractors to do mm. it. The, the, the space shuttle is, you know, or, or any of those are, are almost now completely outsourced, you know, in, in some ways. So the same is true for disaster assistance. It, it takes a village or it takes a nation to do this. And there are um, private and non-government organizations that can do it better or do it um, in, in, a, in a more efficient way in many cases for what it is. My article talks about um, the energy sector, for example, that uh, you have um, most likely government does not actually repair the, the power lines and the substations. It's private companies mm -hmm. that do that. So the four C's are cooperation, meaning that you're cooperating with each other, that you sort of agree that what I do is not gonna hurt or harm what you're doing back and forth sort of thing. Coordination is you're talking with each other, right? You're working together on a process. You have a unity of effort. That's one of those national incident management system constructs, the NIMS concepts. Collaboration, right? You're working together. So maybe it's a team that is um, half this and half that, or it's I'll clear the roads uh, with my trucks and you come in and, and fix the whatever it is that needed. And then finally, communication. That's the last one. That everybody's talking about what they're doing, that they're not holding things back. Those are the four C's. So it's cooperation, coordination, collaboration, and communication. What I came up with was four E's, and that is empower, endow, educate, and entrust. So to go through those sort of um, in a little bit more detail, the idea of um, empower is that you have to give the nonprofits or the VOADs and COADs the sort of responsibility, but that also means you're giving them the, the, the rights to sort of do the jobs that you might have had normally government do. So that's important because in order for them to do what they need to do, they have to have um, the sort of credentials. They have to be in the room uh, to do that. So that's what empower means. Uh, endow is the funding. I, I talked about that, that, um, that, it, that a lot of this is driven by, by money. And, and the idea that, for example, let's take a scenario, a disaster scenario, where you have a train wreck, right? Like um, a train mm -hmm. comes off the train tracks. So local community, the local fire department, the local police, all of those organizations, they do not have a crane. They do not have the expertise to take that train off the ground and put it onto something else and get it on the track, right. whatever it is to fix the situation. They can handle certain essential or mission essential functions, emergency support functions, right? They can handle transportation to some extent, the roads that may need to be dealt with and so forth. Um, but they can't handle that crane. So the town or the county has to hire a contractor to come in and, and pull that train. So they're paying for that. That, that, that work's not done for free. Um, hmm. So the same kind of concept, when it comes to endowing um, NGOs or, or VOADs and COADs, non-government organizations or others, it's not the idea that you're necessarily paying for their staff, but it is the idea that, that government needs to give the contract or give the, um, the support needed and, and endow that organization with the same sort of structure they would if they were asking for or doing a resource request for TARPs or for um, uh, cleanup materials or for uh, machinery or staff or um, 
people from other um, organizations are going to come in as paid um, staff, like additional resources that you would have right. as a um, emergency management assistance uh, as, as part of a, a, a conglomerate or a group that comes together. The, the other one is, um, there's two more, I think I have um, educate. And part of that is the idea that uh, it's a two-way street. So when you're doing things like teaching people the incident command system, right, you're teaching them about um, unified command or, and uh, area command, some of those concepts that you're going to put into place as government, um, bring in the NGOs. They should mm. have that same training too. So, right. so that everybody's speaking in the same language and, and, and using the same um, uh, knowledge levels and understand how things work. The same is true for exercises. When we do a nuclear power um, plant exercise every year in New Jersey, uh, the NGOs are invited to that too because they have a role to play. So now they get to see what it's like at the emergency operations center and how things work and how a resource request happens and how the communications goes between the counties, the state and the federal government. If you're in that when you're practicing, you'll be much better when something real happens. Right. Um, I think the last one I have on there is, let's see, I got to get my little list here. Is and trust. trust. Yes. So that is the idea that um, you would you would fully expect a fire department to do what they do, right? You, mm -hmm. if you say, if you're the emergency management group and, and you task the fire department with putting out the fire, you certainly don't micromanage them as to what hose they use, what, how many firefighters right. are they putting on it, all that sort of stuff. You, your, your, your strategic, your tactical objectives, put out the fire. You know, and maybe it's rescue the people, put out the fire, whatever it is. What tends to happen, though, is that government doesn't fully trust what the NGOs are going to do. So they put somebody there on top of it. Oh, I'm going to watch you run the shelter. I'm going to watch you do the feeding. I'm going to help count uh, how many uh, tarps and blankets you gave away uh, because I don't trust that your numbers are going to be valid. And that's right. that's really not fair. We, we don't do that to anybody else, but yet we sort of have that sense that um, that an NGO for some reason, and it's weird because it's not like it's a volunteer versus a non-volunteer necessarily. We many of our um, states and 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 uh, counties and tribal nations have volunteer fire departments. Right. We don't look at them any differently. But yet, if it's a volunteer-led group um, of people doing debris removal or a volunteer-led group of people doing sheltering or helping families reunify, for some reason there has to be government oversight and and to the level that I don't think it's necessary. And in fact, adds to the confusion. I will tell you anecdotally that um, when I worked for the Red Cross, every night when we had a disaster, you know, working in the emergency operations center, we do shelter counts twice a day at noon and at, at, at uh, midnight. There's a big major difference between what happens between the two times. And uh, the point being is that we do that and we do it all the time. We've doing it for a hundred years, you know, yet in New Jersey, they wanted to have somebody else come in and, and, and count. And the problem was, is if they counted at 12, 10, instead of at 12 o'clock, they might get a different number. And so right. we would spend the next day for four or five hours trying to reconcile the numbers. It's not that critical. And, and, and they added the staffing person to do that. We had others. It's, it's an interesting sort of challenge, but that entrust is really, I think, crucial to this. Um, if you're tasked with a mission, um, you're tasked with a mission and, and you're responsible for it. Yes, government is still ultimately accountable for mm. what you've done, but um, the same way they would task missions for other things, like they would task to a sub-department, uh, environmental protection, for example. Your mission is to make sure that the 
wildlife is safe and that the waterways are clear. You know, that's that's their job. Nobody micromanages them to, to how they do it. So from your experiences that you've had with co-eds and voeds, why don't you give us some examples of where they've worked well and where they haven't worked well and what could have been done to make that work better? Sure. So a couple of things. If um, on the worked well, I think if they follow through the structure that's in place uh, with the state and with the national, they do work well. And and the New Jersey example during Sandy, I think, is is a good is a good one for that. We had a couple smaller storms after that, and because we had the momentum and because the structure was already in place, those went much easier uh, mm. in terms of the 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 connection that people have for making donations the connections people have for wanting to volunteer their time, the connections that organizations have and foundations to donate money, that all is already in place. So it makes it easier to work. When it doesn't work well is as a couple of things. One, when there isn't that construct and um, you know, then what happens is everybody kind of does for themselves. And what will happen is the squeaky wheel sometimes gets the oil and sometimes not. And then there isn't that communication between one level and another. Uh, and what we found is that um, people spend a lot of time building out the structure when, uh, and then the people who need the assistance don't get that assistance until after that structure has been built. Mm. So to give you an example, um, uh, if, you, if, you, if you're a corporation and, or a foundation, you want to give money, you just don't give it to anybody. And a lot of times you can't give it directly to government. Government doesn't have an ability to accept donations. They can take in taxes, but they don't necessarily can take in donations. So someone has to be set up as a charitable organization. And so if your local jurisdiction does not have a charitable organization that's already established, you have to set one up. And the time it takes to do that with the U.S. federal government is is time. It's months. Right. You know, it's not something quickly done. On the other hand, if you already have that construct, for example, in the United States, a lot of our um, jurisdictions have United Ways. It's a nonprofit, and they support other organizations. Um, that United Way might be the ideal place to quickly take in donations. Um, so what happens, uh, as an example, is that somebody will set something up and they need to build that whole infrastructure. So if a, let's say a foundation wants to donate $100,000, how much of that money is going to go to the families that need it versus the overhead and the infrastructure to set it up? Um, you know, you have to have a staff person, you have to have an accountant, you have to have mm -hmm. a bank account, you have to have physical phone number, and now you need a computer. Suddenly that $100,000 is shrunk, right? So, so the, the point being is that if you already have that structure set up, for the co-ed or the voed, much more of that funding from donations can go directly to, right. and probably same with material support and volunteers, so much more of that can go directly to the families in need. Right. That's a great example. Um, I did want to ask, what's your interest in in aliens uh, <laughs> because uh, <laughs> I just want to put this up on the uh, screen because this is hot off the press. Your latest oh, well, article about space aliens. Is there a so conspiracy is, going on? That is a metaphor, and it was a good <laughs> catch. It obviously caught your attention. So um, I am part of the International Association of Emergency Managers Children in Disaster Caucus. So we're a group that deals and, and works through um, children in disaster issues, and there are a number of them. 
And one of the things when I joined that group, um, and I'm a member of the International Association of Emergency Managers, I'm also the vice president for Region 2 in the United States, which covers a couple of states and uh, Puerto Rico and the US Virgin Islands. Thank you. Um, so the, the one of the things that I've noticed, um, and this was back when I was working for the um, Department of Children and Families, is that there really isn't an emphasis at the federal government in the same way there is for energy, for our social security system, for our national defense, things that are considered mission essential functions. What does the government need to do after a disaster or a war or whatever it is happens to sort of restore democracy? I mean, you wanna look at it, restore society. Hmm. And there are a number of things that are out there that are set up. You have to have the electrical grid, That's that runs almost everything. You have to have um, the banking system up and running. You have to have food. You have to have this. You have to have that. What's missing is education and childcare. Surprisingly, they're not in play. And so I used the alien as a metaphor. I said, "Well, here's here's a group of people. What if suddenly there was a you know a whole group of people that were a lot like us, but not quite like us? There were some things that are different, and and we've already dealing with them in some ways." So the article was actually written um, originally, uh, not mentioning children up front. I only mentioned it at the very end. And I, you know, if you literally looked at it, you would start to hopefully figure out that it was children. But the editor said, you know what, you got to tell them up front. They're, they're going to think that you're talking about aliens and that you're off your, your rocker or whatever it is. So it is in the opening paragraph. But yes, the idea is if you think of, um, you can't think of children as small adults. That's the, that's, that's the right. Yeah. So. Even something as simple as uh, transportation, right? We have laws, we have we have policies, we have a societal norms that you have to protect children mm. in cars and vehicles differently than you do adults, mm. right? So the seat belt is not sufficient. You can't just use that. You have to have a child seat. You have to have right. a child seat appropriate to the age. So how do what does that matter to emergency managers? Well, if you're doing an evacuation and you really need to have everyone leave this area, are you going to um, say that everybody has to go in those cars, you know, with those car seats. Are you willing to take the risk? What's right. the what's the balance? So there's an ethical questions, but there's also safety questions. That's what emergency managers do is they deal with the ethical and the safety uh, and, and try to balance it out. Um, and so every mm. one of those emergency support functions that the United States have and the re recovery support functions, the article goes through every one of those and gives an example of where children have different aspects than adults. The thing that really stood out to me from the article, and by the way, I did get that it was about <laughs> children. Um, you mentioned about, it's not just about reducing the size. So often I think, you know, this is my younger child, I'll make a smaller meal. But actually, sure. it's not about reducing the size or the quantity, it's actually there are distinctives that yes. make children different. And that car seat one, the booster seat is a really great um, example to give. Because I don't think people often, when you're thinking about an emergency or a disaster response, you don't think about how am I going to deal with children differently right. than dealing with this adult and, who needs And two care. examples of that right now are um, uh, the uh, are the medical side. So uh, if you look at pediatric surge at a hospital, the process and protocols for that are completely different than they are for adults. You mm. cannot assume that anesthesia is one half 
right. it is for adults. That doesn't just work that way. Medications that, that may be needed. Um, the the uh, durable medical equipment is completely different, right? It's not just a half-sized catheter or wheelchair. There are a lot of things that are on the medical side. That alone is a topic that is completely different. It is not mm -hmm. simply a size structure. There's no, there's no conversion chart necessarily um, as there is for metric to US or English, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, the other example is, um, is COVID. Uh, look, let's look at, let's look at uh, coronavirus um, from two aspects. Education, right? We had whole questions and still do on the educational aspects. So whether it's um, social distancing, masking, PPE usage, um, there are differences in the educational construct than there are at stadiums and and sporting events and uh, faith-based um, services. All of those are different. So put 100 people in a room, it's different than putting 100 children in a school. It's not, mm. not the same and the structures are different. We're in the United States dealing with vaccines now for people between five and 12. What's the issues? What's the testing? What's the dosage right. level? What's the gonna, what's going to be the, um, the, uh, when you have to have a booster, you know, there's, there's a lot of longer term questions for that on, on that issue. And we're still dealing with the education all the way through, through colleges and universities, you know, colleges and universities were shut down and many of them switched to virtual learning and, and, and the impacts of that, the health impacts, the mental health impacts, the long-term social um, development aspects. You know, mm. a child has between, you know, the amount of information and the amount of learning and the amount of growth between year one and year 10 is dramatic. It's much more than an adult between year 50 and year 60. Mm. You, you know, I don't think anybody would dispute that much more happens between your first year and your 20th year than between any other time frame in your life. So, so that is um, one of those things that, um, that the article points out. I did want to ask, do, have you noticed or have you seen, do you consider that there is a relationship between disaster events, uh, events and child human trafficking? Yes, and, and that was, um, that is a, you brought up another good point is that um, unfortunately during any disaster or any large scale incident for that matter, um, there is a correlation between an increase in human trafficking in general and um, and child um, trafficking does certainly fall, fall part of that. And it doesn't matter what the disaster is. And mm -hmm. um, I will tell you that one of the aspects of, um, of training for Red Cross workers, for example, in, in shelters is to recognize the possibility of, of, of child trafficking, human trafficking. Same is true when they come on scene, uh, Red Cross volunteers, when they come on scene uh, of, let's say, a fire. Right. So you have a, a multifamily fire and suddenly you're recognizing if you're if you've been trained, you will recognize when someone is unwilling, to, for example, to provide documentation or looking to someone else as to guidance of whether they should say something to you. Um, so some of that is is very apparent to someone who's had the training for that. I'll give you another anecdotal story. Um, uh, believe it or not, the uh, when the uh, Super Bowl, which is one of the U.S. events, right, um, a major yeah. Uh, worldwide sporting event. When they come to town of the National Football League, the NFL, not only do they bring with them all the expertise associated with the marketing, right, and the and the and the money that's going to be made, but they also bring with them a huge security process for the players, for the for the fans, for the media, for the visitors, for whoever it is that's involved in that. And part of that is a lesson on human trafficking. 
because unfortunately they have come to realize that that the um, there are a lot of bad things that flow with that Super Bowl when it goes from city to city, uh, increase the amount in drug sales, uh, you know, uh, right. sex trafficking. There's a bunch of things that happen. So they want to make sure that 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 the first responders are aware that that's a possibility um, and to, to be cognizant of it. And, and I think they've done an excellent job of of recognizing that. So this is all part of, you know, threat prevention and protection, part of that preparedness aspect that we have. And, and so looking at it and trying to mitigate it through um, through additional training across the board, I, again, back to my my um, educate. I think you got to bring the NGOs in um, when you're doing those kinds of training sessions to your police and fire and other folks. Um, when you have a planned incident, an inauguration, a Super Bowl, uh, any of the sort of what we call um, special events uh, or, or um, uh, national security special events, there's a there's a whole ranking for that if if dignitaries are involved in that sort of thing. Right. So predominantly, Michael, our bachelor students, our Bachelor of Emergency Management and Masters in Emergency Management um, students, as part of their, our new way that we're doing our program, is to actually watch experts like you and think about this and consider their career and where they might like to go and what sort of things they need to put in place to prepare themselves. So what sort of advice would you give for an aspiring emergency manager to be ready for their career? A couple of things. I, I would say definitely um, the academic education is is a great background for the history and and learning the details of what has happened, for example, during um, Hurricane Katrina in the United States and, and really getting into why and how and what changed, right? The laws changed from that. Um, I found um, through my studies that um, that a lot of this is 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 money driven. So whether or not a, and, and historically that's, that's what happens. So if a natural flood occurs, a river floods, and it impacts an area that has no people and no economic benefit, it doesn't get a lot of attention. But it's the fact that it impacted people in economic, the economic side of it, that's where it becomes a play. Um, so that's the kind of thing that you get from the academic side. I also strongly recommend people take advantage of the practical education opportunities. So things like the um, FEMA educational opportunities from EMI, the um, Emergency Management Institute, many of which are um, independent study online courses. Um, so you can take, uh, you know, in, in a day or half a day, you can take an IS course, an independent study course, and learn about um, the sort of structures, learn about uh, NGOs. There's a course on that and, and how that works and, and how a lot of the topics I mentioned. So a good background in that is, is helpful too. And then that interaction with um, with your peers. The, there's a number of groups on LinkedIn. Um, there's an aspiring emergency management uh, group, AEMO, I think it is. Uh, it's a great LinkedIn group um, that, that helps people connect through, through different things. The um, And then getting tied to an organization. You can, for example, you can volunteer with the Red Cross uh, and get involved in government operations. And through that, you may be able to take a, an I, ICS course. Um, so. In, in New Jersey, for example, I took my ICS 300 and 400 courses, which are in-person only. You, you can't do them online. 100, 200, 700, 800, that's the whole series, right? That's, that's, the, that's the NIMS ICS, that's the, the, the books, as they say, uh, um, that's out there. So I, I took mine through uh, a government entity that happened to have seats open for the nonprofits, for the NGOs. So sitting with me were 
police officers, firefighters from a local um, fire department, uh, state level government officials and other nonprofits were involved there too. So it was really neat. And it's a good set of networking too. So we got to meet each other. If something were to happen in that area where I took that class, they already know me. They know my name. They know my, they know right. my training because I took the classes with them. So That's fantastic. Michael, I've um, got your LinkedIn profile on the screen right now, and it's also in the chat and in the comments. What's the best way to get hold of you as well as LinkedIn? Probably um, that is the way. The other thing is, is that I have a, a consulting firm, so it's um, bartondunot.com. And so my um, email address there is info at bartondunot.com. Uh, it's B-A-R-T-O-N-D-U-N-A-N-T.com. Um, the reason it's called Barton Do Not is that is actually the uh, the two founders of the Red Cross, uh, Clara Barton and uh, Henri, Henri Dunant uh, was the Swiss uh, gentleman uh, way back when who uh, started the whole international Red Cross movement. So it's a little homage I, I have to those two uh, is why I named my uh, consulting firm Barton Do Not. Well, what we'll do with the description uh, on LinkedIn facebook and also on youtube with this uh, recording is we'll make sure we have all the links so people can get hold of you reach out to you engage you for training yeah sure. what, what are some of the things that people can engage with you for yeah a couple of things i have most of my work for my consulting firm are um, template uh, type work so if you need a crisis um, action plan you need a risk communications plan um, you need a tabletop exercise i have a lot of those already pre-built and so people can go there and uh and pull those up and and um, pay a small fee. Uh, it's a little bit like um, uh, ordering uh, from Chinese. I'm assuming over uh, in uh, Kiwiland, you guys order one at a time from menus. Sometimes a little of this, a little of that. Um, that's that's sort of the uh, the, the concept. And uh, and then I also do consulting for um, a couple other firms. One does um, uh, work on an overall plan. So if you're an organization and you need to start from scratch, they can help you um, work through the whole uh, process. And the other one actually does virtual versions of those training courses I mentioned. Uh, for example, the G108, which is a course on um, mass care, it's part of the advanced professional series from FEMA. So if you wanna take this, this get this certification from FEMA, um, you need to take five courses in, in one set of group and, and five in another group. Most of those courses are only offered in your jurisdiction whenever they're offered. So if you're from somebody from international, it's going to be challenging because they don't come over to to New Zealand or or to to Indonesia to teach those courses. But you can take them virtually online. Um, hmm. So the firm that I work with um, has those virtual courses, and you can take a G108, you can take an ICS 300 um, online yourself, and it takes whatever it takes, two days, three days. The test is online. It's a live course. Um, it's taught um, interactively with instructors from around the, the world. Uh, as well as students too. So it's a really good good grouping. I just took a course from them um, and there was a gentleman on there from uh, Athens, Greece taking the class. So it, it's, uh, he had a very different time zone like you do now, but, uh, right. but uh, the classes are offered uh, lots of different times, lots of different days. It's great, Michael, and I really hope that people do reach out to you. Uh, and I know that emergency managers are always training, always looking to upskill and always looking to pick up the latest tips and the latest practice and the state of the art. Uh, one of the ways that people can do that, of course, is we have our own Bachelor of Emergency Management and also a Master's in Emergency Management, which is accredited in the United Kingdom with NOTN and also in the United States with Texas A&M University System, so a Bachelor 
from us is accredited with them and if you get a bachelor with us you can do a master's with Texas A&M and so on the next higher level degree and if you're an emergency manager and you're watching this right now and you've got significant training and every emergency manager I've met they have this gigantic folder of all their certificates and trainings they've done if you haven't got a bachelor degree or you'd like to get your master's degree we actually offer significant credit and we actually recognize all of that incredible training that you have done so that you can get credit you can finish your master's or your bachelor degree much quicker and cheaper and from anywhere in the world and we engage with social media have great people like Michael and engage with his content as well so really encourage you if you want to improve your professional qualifications reach out to us as well and the link is on the screen Michael thank you so very much for giving us your time your expertise and your experiences really do appreciate you you're welcome thanks a lot Craig